We interview experts and enthusiasts in the natural resources field, and we get them to explain what's going on. I'm Natalie. And I'm Heather. Today we have Connor Flexig with us. Did I say your name right? Yes, you did. That was awesome. I'm Incredible. so excited. Nailed I it. practiced beforehand. That's big. No one ever does. So Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Connor is a senior in forage and rangeland stewardship. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, thank you so much for coming out. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess our first question is, how did you get into natural resources and what compels you to study forest and rangeland stewardship specifically? So coming from California, the biggest thing for me was uh, growing up in a place that has a lot of water issues, has a lot of natural resource issues. Um, I'm also um, in a really beautiful part just above uh, San Francisco, California. And so recreation is a huge part of my life as well. And I thought, I don't want to stay in California. So many people. And I thought, where's the next best place to adventure? Colorado. Uh, So my best friend and I went out and toured most of the schools here in Colorado. And uh, I came up with Fort Collins being the place for me. And he came up with uh, the Air Force Academy. So he's there now, but natural resources, which is in the FRS department was the choice because it was so broad. My advisor describes it as being inch deep and a mile wide. So it's really, really broad. And I don't exactly know what I want to do with it. I just know that I love the outdoors. I love nature. And so this was a kind of an easy punt for me to just say, all right, NRM, let's do it. Figure it out from there. Our next question was what your aspirations are for after you graduate. So you just mentioned, haven't quite figured it out yet, but do you have like a broad idea of yeah. Like what you want to get out of life after you graduate? Maybe? Yeah, it's a hard question. It's an awesome question. And I love to ask it myself and I get it a lot, especially at this point in my academic career, because it's, it's so exciting to hear about where people are going. My roommate now has a job lined up for when he graduates and all this stuff. And that has me really excited. And I definitely am not quite, not quite there, <laughs> which is all good. But, um, I started at CSU just kind of at that broad scale level and got into an extracurricular program. It's an organization on campus called the Center for Public Deliberation, which is an amazing organization dedicated to civic engagement and creating a better and more active democracy. And I found a lot of hope in that, especially with things going on in partisan politics, the fact that local action can still be had. And I call it puzzle piece action, right? You can do so much uh, on these different scales and have it line up in the end. And so with the CPD, the Center for Public Deliberation, I was able to kind of realize that communication, the relationship building, the somewhat of the policy and politics that's really important in natural resources as well. And that kind of started leading me a little bit. And I think that's probably a big reason why I started doing education or started getting into some education as well and outreach. And so looking ahead, I do see myself doing a lot in terms of facilitating, in terms of educating and outreach and relationship building within the natural resources. I obviously would love to use my degree, but those soft skills of communication, I find to be really, really important in a, in a field that doesn't always do so well. Yeah. Natural resources is all about the way you communicate. Because if you can't express to the people who are causing these issues exactly what they're doing, it's very hard to get anywhere. And I totally agree with you. I'm actually a communications major. Awesome. So I'm- Yeah, you're right with me. You're talking about this. <laughs> oh, totally, totally, very cool. Yeah, I didn't mention, but when I say facilitating, I was a trained facilitator with the CPD, which was a big part of 
really, I guess, feeling that validation, like, yeah, I could do something with this. And there's a shift currently going on with trying to communicate better within our fields, but that goes, you know, our field to the public agency to agency, different disciplines, trying to talk to each other. That's a really important thing. So those are all kind of places I see myself maybe going, but not really sure at this point. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. You've got time. I do. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to know right now. Yeah. It's an exciting place to be. (sighs) Yeah. It's actually really exciting. And applying for jobs has me feeling excited, like seeing actual position titles. Yeah. It's like, oh, I could do that. Anchorage, Alaska. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's fun. It's really fun. Cool. Yeah. And so you are a Pulliam scholar, right? That's right. Um, so can you explain more what that means and how that's affected your time here at CSU? Totally. So that was what I was saying about kind of starting to gear towards education and outreach. And the Pulliam program is like a little leg off of the ELC, the Environmental Learning Center at CSU. And it is a competitive scholarship program that I applied for, interviewed for, and um, was able to have a position with the ELC. And basically what we do is we have a class and then we have uh, field trips that we lead. And so the class is learning all about education theory, environmental education specifically. It's working through a lot of that uh, standards material. So learning like what are we teaching and how do we teach that? And then after the first couple of weeks of the semester, we've now shifted to actually teaching it, putting it into action, which is really cool. I have two nephews. I love kids. So this was a huge thing for me. I'm teaching fourth. All of us are teaching fourth graders this semester, which is the perfect age where people are, you know, the kids are just like, they're engaged. They're excited. It's really just like if my two part plan, can I tell you my two part plan? Please do. My two part plan for education is one is elevating, energizing and elevating. And then the second one is directing or like putting that somewhere productive, right? So all of a sudden, like you're talking on the trail, I'm walking backwards, talking to all these little kids. And all of a sudden we see a bird up above and we're just like, all right, we got to make some bird noises. And the kids are going crazy, right? And it's like, okay, well, how do we start moving that to a place? So we talk about like, well, what does that tell? What do bird noises tell us? Okay, it tells us that there are birds there. That tells us that maybe it's communicating or, you know, you try to start gearing it or trying to uh, force them to, to learn, I guess, because otherwise they're just going to have a great time out on the trail. Um, and which not, is also good, which is really not important. The goal, not the end goal. Yeah. Not the primary objective, but yeah, I've been doing that. And next semester I'll be teaching the fourth graders. And then as well, I will be mentoring high schoolers with research projects, I think at a local charter school and then Buddha high school as well. Yeah, but the Pulliam program, it's really created a a shift in how I foresee my future. And through the program, I'll be getting certified as an environmental educator. And that's in the state of Colorado. But Colorado is one of the only states that that accreditation goes national. So I'll be able to go anywhere and teach environmental education, which is that's fantastic. Super exciting. So I'm actually able to apply for those sorts of jobs. And I just applied for one in D.C. and I'm looking at one in Washington, Washington State. So all these different doors are opening with that program, which is really exciting. That's so great to hear. Yeah. Yeah, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's a it's an incredible group of people I'm surrounded by. I'm learning a lot from all the other educators. I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and so I'm interested. You touched a little bit on this, but how working with students has kind of affected you personally and also affected how you approach natural resources um, just in general, if it has at all. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm the kind of nerd, especially with like trees where if I'm on a hike with someone, I'd start telling them about trees 
And I'll specifically, anecdotally, I'll say scientific names don't mean anything to anyone unless you're another scientist. That's mm-hmm. a huge thing that I learned. Kids don't care <laughs> about, you know, Pinus edulis. Like that's not important. But if you say this is a Ponderosa pine and they're from Ponderosa Elementary, they're going to lose their minds. <laughs> right. Which is super cool. So yeah. again, yeah, that communication is super important and, and realizing that audience becomes even more important as you start to change up who you're talking to, change that audience. So talking to uh, younger kids or people who are less uh, aware of what's going on in the natural world, which I assume I could be working on in my future. So that's something that I want to be working on and developing, but yeah. Literally keep talking about this. We just have so many questions about it just since education and environmental education is so important, especially to you and just to literally everything. Yeah. Um, But how did you get first involved in the ELC? Through the Pulliam It was through the Pulliam program. So I have a couple friends who work for the ELC as actual paid positions like work studies or what have you, and have heard about the ELC through that only, through a couple friends. One friend who was working with the ELC and then became a park interpreter up in Yellowstone, which was like super cool. And then another friend who teaches out at the ELC campus, which is uh, near I-25. But other than that, I had no real exposure to the ELC prior to becoming a Pulliam Scholar and working as a student and an educator underneath Nicole Stafford's. I love Nicole. She's great. She's lovely. (laughs) She is the best. Yeah. Next semester, we'll be working with Kirsten, who is the other ELC employee, and she's also wonderful. So super excited for that. But yeah, Nicole has been a wonderful introduction to the ELC. Yeah. I got to interview them both a while back. Cool. Um, about Yvonne Schramm. Do you know? Her? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love her. She's our TA for the program. She's yeah. wonderful. She's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And they have nothing but good things to say. And so I will say we looked at your other interviews that you've done and you mentioned having a minimalist lifestyle. Oh, sure. Um, can you talk more about that? Yeah. That's really funny. We've been, Haley, my friend who's visiting from California, we've been talking about that in terms of the way people perceive me. Uh, specifically and how we create images and how we view each other. But I definitely would, I've been labeled a minimalist for sure. I haven't necessarily brought that label under my wing, but I definitely, I understand that it's, it's maybe a little bit more than what other people do. I definitely live pretty consciously, I guess, is what I'd rather say. Um, So I, you know, everything that I own is in my closet or in my room. Uh, I could definitely pack up and leave in about 30 minutes. I don't own a bed. I sleep on a wonderfully thick mattress topper, like a Tempur-Pedic topper on the floor. It's very comfortable. People always wonder. It is. But I think what you're referring to maybe was my interview after hiking in New Zealand, which is a big thing that I love to do as well, which is backpacking. And that's a, a very minimalist lifestyle that I temporarily adopt or, you know, get to live for a, a short period of time. And that definitely plays into environmentalism and how I like to live my life thinking about this earth we live on, something that, you know, gives to us endlessly. What do we give to it or what are we taking from it? So I think about that a lot. And yeah, it is very important. I definitely I, I came to Warner College less so of this minimalist guy. It definitely has been uh curated this image over the course of my years here, but incredibly motivated and inspired by uh, the people in Warner. 
it's very interesting being a senior now and feeling like I have to be one of those people or I should be, I want to be one of those people that inspires because in my underclassmen years and my freshman and sophomore years, having those people to look up to was incredible, really changed my experience. And so I came in, like I said, not quite a minimalist, I would say, and started talking the Warner talk and over the years decided I should walk the walk. So here I am. Yeah. Um, so you don't really consider yourself a minimalist. You just think you're just are more aware of the impact you have. Right. So you wouldn't call yourself a minimalist though. I mean, I wouldn't, I definitely like the second people hear that I sleep on the floor, they, they start putting that label on, which makes a lot of sense, but I, yeah, it's either way. Yeah. I'll take it. I couldn't live without a bed, but yeah. I respect it. <laughs> understand it. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So did you go through like a process where one day you were like, I'm going to get rid of a bunch of things or was it more like gradual for you? Ark has seen me a couple times dropping <laughs> off the clothes for sure. But I'll say it was more functional or more practical than anything else. I got out of the dorms and was looking around for a bed and you do not want to buy a used mattress and a new mattress is really expensive, like yeah. really expensive. So I just decided no way I have this mattress topper from the dorms, you know, extended twin good to go. And so I just laid that down and called it good. I just, I definitely will say, I think for me personally and my family background and whatnot, financial uh, anxiety comes into play with that for sure. And balancing that with, you need to get groceries. You need to do a couple things like, Hey, you can buy like a nice new pair of socks if you want. Um, yeah. I think uh, kind of bringing back to that conversation I had with my friend, Haley here, allowing yourself to kind of go against the grain of, of an image that's been kind of created um, and saying, okay, well, maybe I, at some point I do want a bed or maybe I, I don't. I love my mattress bed. <laughs> For the record. So, yeah. Yeah. Just so we're, are we on no, record it. here? Yeah. On the record. But, uh, but other things it's like, well, yeah, like I see things in the thrift store when I'm dropping off all my other clothes and I'm like, this looks awesome. I would love to pick that up. And I do. And I think that's important. Um, to maybe bringing this kind of broad for a moment. As an environmentalist, I think a lot of people try to live this really staunch or really rigid lifestyle, trying to make sure, and you see it in Warner a lot, trying to really walk this walk. And I think it's really, it, it can be a wonderful thing. It can also uh, alienate or disenfranchise other people who are thinking about getting into a little more uh, environmentally conscious lifestyles. And so I try to, I try to bridge that gap a little more myself. And I think that's really important. And again, kind of draws back to that uh, communication and how to, how to bring awareness without saying like, yeah, I don't sleep on the floor and you should, you, or I sleep on the floor and you should too. That's not yeah, how that's, I feel. Uh, if you said that to me, I'd be like, okay, bye. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> I'm like, I'm definitely sleeping on a bed. <laughs> yeah. I want you to be sleeping on your bed. That's Thank very you. important to me. You know, like I, I wouldn't want my pad to be taken away. I know that you would want your bed. So. Yeah. Bridging that gap is a huge thing. I think especially with the Warner College of Natural Resources, a lot of times it feels so separate and so far from this like capitalist lifestyle that we've all been socialized in. And so I think making that jump can be really hard. Sure. But when you have more people like you who are finding a balance with that, even though you don't have a bed, you still like buy things. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so I think that is helpful to realize and learn. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, you're hitting it on the head. I think Warner has a huge image. Every time 
talk about Warner or hear something about Warner, people like, Oh, Warner, like that's so cool. Or, Oh wow. Warner, like I don't wear chacos. I can't step in that yeah, it's building. Like all those hippies, right? <laughs> right, right. You're yeah. either wearing, you're either wearing cowboy boots or chacos and there's no in between you either, you know, you got a uh, car heart or a, you know, like flannel. Yeah. One or the other. <laughs> there you go. But yeah. <laughs> it. It, well, I'll, I'll say first, like it's a, it's a beautiful place to find belonging and that community is something that I think people know about. People feel that. And then at the same time, how do you keep that community open for applicants? Yeah. We're always ready for more Warner students. Yeah. <laughs> great tagline. <laughs> yeah. I got to bring it in there for a moment. Warner is a great place to be. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah. Um, me and Natalie are both actually from the Liberal Arts College, but okay. we both work at Warner. Okay. Um, and have for, she's worked here for a while and I've worked here for probably like eight months or something, but it definitely stepping into that space is different than a lot of places on campus in a both positive and negative way. In the positive way, there's such a sense of community and you, it's just like everybody's together and you just feel like you're all working towards the same goal. Mm. But then as an outsider coming in, it felt a little weird because they were all working towards the same goal and I was here and I love the environment. It's like important to me, obviously. Sure. Um, but I felt like I was like a step behind everybody else. Mm. Um, but I think that community is so deeply ingrained in Warner and I think it's fantastic. And I think it's one of the few places on campus like that. Mm. And I think that's really valuable. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions on ways to bridge that gap? What are your thoughts? Wow. <laughs> that's huge. Uh, question. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't really have too many thoughts. I know for myself, I, it just personally try to diffuse like this know-it-all persona that is definitely inside me sometimes as a bit of a nerd. Um, and that's huge in terms of making other people feel welcome to digest information that's being given or that's being expounded on. I, th I think a lot of the time you'll hear people, I think just back to that disenfranchisement, people start to feel a little alienated when you come at them with a perspective of, I know you don't know, or I'm in Warner and you're not, um, which is not the same thing. I'm not trying to correlate those two. I agree. But uh, um, sometimes that's the mindset of someone uh, within Warner. I can feel that sometimes. I feel that within myself. And so trying to diffuse that is really important. I don't have any actual like solid five, seven, 12 <laughs> point sure. plans. Yeah. I don't have any of those, but I wish I did. Yeah. Super hard question. Yeah. No, great question. I love Warner. Yeah. I like am part of the community now, so I feel great about it. Right. And obviously working to include people is part of what this podcast is all about. Mm -hmm. All right. Sorry. Getting back to our written questions that <laughs> Absolutely. we worked hard on. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> I know, I know y'all did. Yes. All right. So we did want to ask you about your study abroad and that yeah. experience. Yeah. And so we wanted to ask you, like, what was the process of choosing to do the walking mm -hmm. um, first of all? And then what was your biggest takeaway from that part of the experience? Okay. My first answer is going to be really boring. My second answer hopefully will be a little more interesting. Perfect. It's so anticlimactic when I tell people. Uh, I wanted to go to France. Fran uh, French is the French. French is the <laughs> is the language <laughs> I know best after English. Still not very well, but I come up to my advisor and I say, "Okay, where can I go? I want to study abroad. I want to be French speaking." And Megan, who's a wonderful advisor, I used to work for her. She was like, "That's great. You can go to Lincoln, New Zealand." I was like, okay, so any other place? She's like, Lincoln, New Zealand, <laughs> period. Basically, if I wanted uh, transfer credits or credits to transfer over studying abroad, I had to go to Lincoln. It's the only thing that worked for my major. 
So that was a really easy decision because I knew I wanted to try something new and get out there and experience something different in terms of hiking the hike. So I had chosen New Zealand. I'm starting all this paperwork to uh, get these classes underway and have everything transfer. And I just bump into an article that talks about the TA, the Te Aroa, which is the long pathway in New Zealand. And it, it goes all the way from the tip of the north to the bottom of the south uh, with a ferry ride in between. And I thought that sounded awesome. I'd done a little backpacking before that. I loved to backpack, like I said, but so I thought I'd check it out. Maybe I could do some of this on my weekends or whatever, right? I look it up and I go on Google Earth and have this like trail overlay and I look at it and it continues right outside Auckland Airport. Like literally the airport parkway was the trail. It's um kind of this um mix match urban and outback or bush experience. It's very patchwork. So I saw this and I was like, wow, I could just go a little early and fly into my flight and hike down to class. And that's exactly what I did. I, I flew into New Zealand about eight months later after eight months of planning and got into Auckland airport around 9am, two days after Christmas. And I bought a tube of sunblock and a lighter and I was on the trail by 930. That, that was it. I just started walking and then, you know, two months later I was down at school. So have you done ultralight backpacking before or? Yeah. So Kind of interesting. The article does posit me as an ultralight backpacker. Um, in New Zealand, that was a little more the case. You know, New Zealand is has a little bit of a harder time getting access or having access to ultralight things. It's kind of an American thing. Can you so, explain what that means? Because I, I don't know. What it means. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So thanks. Sorry. Backpacking in general, right? You have everything on your back, and you're going through with certain comforts, right? So it's this balance between. I could talk about this for years. So this is going to be bad. Um, uh, it's a balance between, uh, being comfortable when you're walking. So not having too much on your back and then being comfortable when you're sleeping. So having enough that your, your tent or your sleeping bag, or, you know, all your layers are enough to keep you comfortable. So it's this interesting balance to keep and ultralight kind of decides to go a hundred percent one way on that, which is being super, super comfortable, being able to like crush miles. It's a very American thing. And so having a really, really light backpack and kind of suffering through if there's like a cold snap or your sleeping environment in terms of America, was that succinct enough? Yeah, there maybe is more to that, but, um, so the American kind of push for this has come in the way of small cottage companies. Like when I got my backpack, I just emailed this dude and he's like, yeah, like, what do you want on this thing? And we're just like emailing back and forth. Like they're called cottage companies. It's like, he makes like, you know, a couple backpacks every now and then. And, uh, it's very customizable and all this stuff, but the materials are different. And so it's very, very light. I did sleep under a tarp that was created by a cottage company. And so my backpack was like 14 pounds and in, in the States at this point, that's pretty standard. I don't, I don't actually consider myself or no one really considers me ultra light until I go to New Zealand where a lot of those resources aren't available. And so then I was a little bit lighter, but not actually ultra light. You run like, yeah. Yeah. 14 pounds definitely sounds pretty light. And it was, I was able to like, yeah, that is pretty light. Uh, you know, I could take a jog with my backpack on, which felt great um, as a runner, but I'm starting to, to diverge a little bit either way. Yeah. So I definitely had a little bit of that minimalist style going on uh, in New Zealand and allowed me to really take full control of my experience of my adventure there. 
and tailor it to how I wanted to do it. I, again, like I don't have a bed, right? So I don't need a whole lot to sleep on. I love a hard surface. So just sleeping on the ground feels awesome. Um, and New Zealand doesn't have any predators, like any native, like large mammals. The only native mammals in New Zealand besides like one bat are marine mammals. So dolphins, seals, sea lions, whales. So so cool. All my, all my events at night were, you know, dealing with like little possums and cause they're all invasive, but little possums and bunnies and yeah, things like that. So it was easy to sleep under a tarp and sleep on the ground. And yeah, um, see my biggest backpacking fear is bears. And I know right. it's a little irrational, but it's not that irrational. Not that irrational. But it like, yeah, it's spooky. Yeah. Sometimes you're just like in your tent, you're like, oh my gosh what was that? Like, I'm about to die. Oh yeah. So that sounds great to me. (laughs) Yeah. New Zealand is like, I think New Zealanders hate when you say it's like very safe and very easy. I've had that pushback. Like, Oh, New Zealand is not, not as safe as you think. It's like a real country. Make sure you're, you're taking care of yourself, which is true. It is a real country. But at the same time, in terms of backpacking, you don't have to worry about where you're washing your, your dishes. You're not worried about a bear smelling that and coming to you or a cougar or uh, coyotes or wolves or there's n- nothing. I mean, you got a bunch of beautiful birds making songs and um, a couple of possums uh, eating up the vegetation. That's it. That's so cool. It's really nice. Yeah. Um, did you want to talk about your actual study abroad when you made it to campus? Yeah. Um, and I'll kind of put this in an academic context now because that was like, you could have me talking about the recreational forever. I, I went down and I was seeing all these different things in the environment. So not only whilst I'll talk, I, I saw a, uh, a whole beach forest, uh, beach trees, a beach forest, just like covered in this uh, black canker or fungus. And I was like, what's going on? I saw all these wasps just like kind of hanging around all these uh, really dead looking trees or I had experiences with native people there, people who are from New Zealand who were telling me like, like just scooping the water up from the rivers and streams and just drinking them. Um, especially in the South Island, it's just like raw, so clean. And especially up catchment, like when you're really high up in the mountains, there's, it's just gorgeous, gorgeous, clean water. So really interesting aspects of the natural resources there that I didn't really understand or didn't know why it was the way it was. And then I also saw the way that people related to the natural world in New Zealand to be completely different than the States. Uh, just walking through a town once and some guy was, you know, we're on like a bike trail and some guy stops and he's like, Hey, you, you, you walkers. We're like, yeah. He's like, well, do you know about these trees? And he just walks with us for 30 minutes. And he's like, this tree does this, this tree does this. You see those caterpillar bites on this tree. That's because that's like a really good leaf right there. The ones that don't have caterpillar bites, that's not a tasty leaf. So if you're making tea with these leaves, take ones that have caterpillar bites in them because those are the tasty leaves. Like, just knowing so much about the natural world and you, I bumped into that often, which was really cool. And we don't have that connection in the same way. I feel that at least it was really contrasting. So I got down to school uh, in Lincoln, just below Christchurch on the South Island and was able to ask and have answers, which, which was basically just interpreting all of this uh, foreign site, all these foreign sites that I was seeing and what is going on? Why are the trees black? How do we know so much about the natural world? Do people, is this part of our curriculum as kids or, you know, so I got to learn so much like, yeah, this is an invasive wasp, but really had this cool first couple of maybe first month in, 
in university where I was getting so much information about everywhere I just was, which really had me unbelievably grateful for having the experience uh, to get out there and, and see the natural resources. And then, you know, I, I took a soils class. I was actually doing research with soils and then also like a water quality and quantity and agroforestry, um, which is uh, agriculture and farming is really, really big in New Zealand. It's mainly agricultural in terms of their industry in New Zealand. So got a lot of good uh, insight into New, New Zealand natural resources. And it was so relevant, right? Because they're talking about like, so where do we have like the most agroforestry? And I was like, oh, I was walking through so much like in the North Island right over here. Like, you know, there's like, yeah, exactly. So then they talk about why that is and the soil there or the, um, the ability for timber because of the topography because South Island just gets so mountainous. I could go on forever, but it was just really, really exciting to yeah, get some insight on everything I had just seen and really had me seeing my backpacking is not just like this super fun, random serendipitous event that I was able to undertake, but also a academically stimulating and enriching experience. That's so cool. Awesome. <laughs> Great answer. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. I love, I love talking about New Zealand. It was an incredible experience. Yeah. It's definitely on my list. Lord of the Rings is my favorite movie. Yeah. Hobbiton. So, yeah. Very important to me to get there eventually. <laughs> yeah. It was so cool. Just like so many people, you, you stop at like a place that has a beautiful view and you see a little sign that says like, and they shot this scene here. Like that happened a lot. Or you just talk to someone random and they're just like, yeah, I was in the movie because they, they, (laughs) they got everybody in New Zealand in that movie. I swear. That's so cool. It's really funny. Yeah. Cool. So our last question um, to leave everyone with is what are you currently curious about and what do you want to know more about? Did you see my LinkedIn? What is this? Yeah. My, my LinkedIn is, uh, all about curiosity. My little, uh, bio staying curious, really, really important. I think that's a big part of what I was saying with Warner kids, or I hear it a lot when you start to age is, um, you feel like, you know, stuff, right. And I definitely feel like my education has taught me a lot of stuff, but oh my gosh, if you think that the only thing that stops you from keep, uh, from continuing your education and, and staying open to learning is the thought that you're done learning. That's the only thing that'll close you off to it. So right now, right now, what am I curious about? I, I can't wait to see what the rest of the world holds. I think I've dealt so much within Colorado community, within Warner community, and that's often liberal. That's often environmentally focused. That's often a lot of those things that aren't necessarily in other places. And it's really easy to educate and get work done in those spheres but it's not necessarily the place where that work is as needed. Does that make sense? Yeah. So uh, it's really interesting because I, I think about where do I want to live? Anchorage, Alaska. That sounds awesome, right? Do those people need education on their natural world? They, I, they've maybe, I mean, a little bit. Sure, everyone does. But uh, some place like in, um, I hate to single out the South, but something like Alabama where they don't actually have recycling my roommates from the South and, you know, came here and, and we worked through how to recycle and how, cause I'm coming from California where my neighborhood has a carbon watch council. <laughs> and so that, that's a really interesting thing to me. And I'm really interested to see how education and outreach and all those different things, how that looks in a place that might need it more, but doesn't think so. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. It Thanks was for having such me. a pleasure Thank to have you. you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
Let me know if you uh, you want to talk some more. I'm yeah. always ready. Well, dude, awesome. I love yeah. chatting with you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks again for joining us on Tune Into Nature. This is us signing off. I'm Heather. I'm Natalie. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>